At bestvolleyballvideos.com, we have over 150 hours of training videos developed specifically for the youth and high school age volleyball player. Please go to bestvolleyballvideos.com. Hello, everybody. This is going to be part one in a two-part series on the evolution and the development of the setting position. Uh, I'm doing this podcast basically in hindsight after spending almost 40 years training setters uh, at, at a very high level and at the club level and sending over 125 setters on to play collegiate volleyball. And those setters on 29 separate occasions were named All-American at the collegiate level. So uh, I'm going to try to give you my experience and background in the things that we did uh, in the area of setter training uh, that I think was pretty significant to the development of the way setters are trained in this country um, since the late 1980s. And I never played volleyball, but when I was first introduced to the sport, it wasn't hard to figure out that the setting position was the most important position in terms of developing a team and a program and a culture. It's almost impossible to develop a championship-level team and program without elite-level setting, and the qualities that elite-level setters can bring to a program's culture uh, in terms of leadership and, and other areas are just crucial. And if you know the sport of volleyball, which obviously if you're listening to this podcast, you're a coach and you do, you would understand that. Uh, and the one thing that I saw right away was that I could not always control the athletes that were in my gym. I couldn't always control the physicality. I couldn't always have the most dynamic attackers, which are, are key components to winning. But the one thing I could control was I could control who was setting the team and I could control a lot in a lot of the areas the ability for our first contact people to get the ball to the setter to do her job. And so those th that concept or those first two contacts, the pass and the dig, and you know then the set, you know if you excel in those areas at a high level, then you're always going to have a chance to be competitive. You may not win all the time, but you're always going to be competitive if your first contact and your setting skills are, are clean. So... Um, and I, I think for a lot of the for for a lot of the years from the '80s and into the '90s, one of the things that we were we happened was we were criticized a lot, heavily criticized for the way that we trained our setters. It was pretty non-traditional at the time. Uh, a lot of people thought it was too flashy. And then if you fast forward now to 2023, almost every setter you watch is incorporating all the concepts that we were teaching 30 plus years ago. And uh, I'm going to address that here in this first part just to discuss uh, why I think this evolution of setting happened. And I don't fault the coaches at the time for feeling the way they felt. I, I think we were what we were teaching was pushing the envelope in regards to what was accepted method for training setters. It's not really unlike swing blocking where when it was first introduced, had a lot of coaches resisting implementing it because it was more dynamic, had more moving parts, it seemed like players were often blocking out of control. And again, if you fast forward to 2023, virtually every high-level men and women's team in the world is using some form of swing blocking. And um, I, I think the thing to do is let's take a look first at the resistance that came uh, in regards to the setting and why coaches were pretty sure that I was crazy. Um, I, I, a little bit of background. I always knew that I would be a coach. I just never dreamed I would be coaching the sport of volleyball. And first, why was I a coach who had never played volleyball changing the way setters were being taught and trained? I think that was one of the big questions because I know when I first started coaching that, you know, there was a lot of resistance because I didn't have a background in volleyball. But I didn't bring any preconceived ideas about how volleyball should be trained. 
you know, I looked at it just from a purely uh, biomechanical and other areas about how, what was the best way to do this. And you've heard me say in past podcasts, I was a former college football player, uh, ran on the track team also in college. And I, to be honest, I knew less than nothing about the sport of volleyball until I saw my first high-level match in 1979. And I watched the USA men play the Soviet Union at the time. They weren't Russia yet. It was the Soviet Union. Um, and it, that was at the Fieldhouse uh, in Madison, Wisconsin, the University of Wisconsin campus. And that's the first elite-level volleyball match I ever saw, which was in 1979. And as, as, I, started, as I started looking, uh, working with volleyball and knew I was gonna, wanted to coach volleyball, you know, the, the setting position became something that was really, really important to develop, and uh, as I mentioned, because I thought that was going to be the t- key to team development. And one of the things I think is that we really challenged the, the traditional volleyball landscape in regard to setter development in three different ways. And the first thing we did is we changed the style of what the average setter looked like. And First and foremost, after watching, you know, I watched hundreds of hours of video and live play when I first started. I, I just, I, I had been a former football player, so studying tape and reading and those kind of things was something that I was just used to doing. And I spent hours and hours and hours studying volleyball. And I was amazed at some of the just absolutely great sets that were being made when setters were challenged to make plays on, on just pure athletic ability outside of what what was called at the time, you know, t- traditional setting techniques. And that was, you know, the traditional way of setting was to get to the ball, face the target, square up. And that's one of the things that just was driven home all the time. And if, if there are two words that are used more than any other by volleyball coaches when they communicate with their setters, it has to be the word square up, which any setter will tell you that they, they go to bed at night thinking about their coaches in their ears saying square up, square up, square up. And I've talked in past podcasts that I see the, the evolution of the setting position as similar to the evolution of the sport of volleyball, basketball. Um, the sport went from a static, uh, patterned, and somewhat predictable type of sport to a much more athletic, free-flowing model that allowed players to be less rigid with their techniques and much more flexible and creative. And it was also a lot more entertaining to watch. I mean, if you watch basketball now, especially the NBA, uh, you know, just the game looks completely different than it did 60 or 70 years ago. So to me, the setting position, uh, and we're going to talk about football and quarterbacking a little bit later, but the setting position has kind of evolved like basketball evolved. And, you know, sometime along the same steps. And one thing I noticed when I was when I first started, and uh, when I first started coaching volleyball, I didn't know anything about it. So I spent hundreds of hours studying it. I just knew that I had to study and know as much as I could about it. So I watched anything I could get my hands on. I read anything I get get my hands on. And you know, I was seeing one of the things I was seeing in the '80s is that the setters were making really difficult sets, um, but when they were making these sets, they weren't in the traditional setting technique. And they used almost any means possible to get the ball to the attacker. And, you know, this meant, you know, they were spinning off one leg and they were jump setting off one leg and they were setting sideways or they were underhand setting long distance cross court. I mean, it it, it only made sense that the setting position needed to evolve as the sport was evolving with faster systems and more dynamic athletes. And today, with an emphasis on faster sets and systems, we see an evolution in setting techniques, especially footwork and body posture uh, during the release of the ball. And in the 1980s and into the 90s, when we started training our setters to use many of these emergency emergency techniques as part of their normal training program, 
we allowed and even encouraged them to adopt a less rigid style. I think that's what rubbed a lot of coaches the wrong way is, you know, we gave them the green light to do more, be more aggressive with their setting choices. Using a less rigid setting style, you know, it allowed our setters to be more deceptive and they could turn uh, and turn that was often considered risky by coaches uh, or difficult to set something that would execute on a regular basis, primarily because it was something they were practicing daily in their training. And so, you know, what we did was we took these emergency techniques that setters would use when they got in trouble. Um, and what we did was we spent a lot of time working on them so they became First of all, your body remembers what it does on a regular basis, but we wanted the setters to be able to master these these techniques and just be more comfortable when the ball wasn't always at the net. And, you know, we were junior volleyball, so we weren't passing at the net every time. So we wanted the, our setters to be more comfortable. So we gave them the green light to just be more flexible with what they did with their bodies. And, you know, they liked it. They had a chance to be more creative, and, and uh, it allowed them to, to expand and evolve their game. And I think by the mid-1990s, anywhere you went in the United States, it became a pretty common theme to discuss setters and who and where they were trained from. And coaches would often say as soon as they saw a setter play that they could tell that the setter was trained by or at sports performance, uh, which is the club that we ran. And it was obvious that our setters were having success. Uh, we were also winning a lot. Um but we were also challenging the norms in the volleyball world regarding the way setters were training and also the way they were playing. And I often, as I said earlier, I often heard the words flashy or tricky when describing our setters. But to me, it was just, it was biomechanics and efficiency of movement. And the more freedom and flexibility we gave our setters when they were on the court, the more they were able to create opportunities for our attackers to be successful. And if you fast forward to today, and the training we started implementing in the late 1980s and early 90s, it's practiced in almost a high school gym, club gym, college gym in the country. And you go around the world, it's the same thing. And I think with the rise of social media, I see lots of short video clips posted by coaches and players of their latest setting drills and what they're doing in their gyms. And, you know, I, you know, I have to smile at it because virtually everything I see now is stuff that we were doing 25 or 30 years ago in our gym. And I love it. I mean, I think it's important that coaches constantly work to evolve and they constantly push the envelope and they they constantly grow and have their players you know work to be better at what they do and execute at a higher level um, but I think the foundations are the one thing that I'm really proud of is the foundations that we set decades ago with letting the setters letting the setting position expand and, and become you know kind of a model of what it is today and uh, so that's the first thing. The first thing is the setters look different. They look different than the traditional setters. So number two is we took the setting position and we turned it into a single position training concept. And before before I think this happened in the 70s and 60s and 70s and, and early 80s, you would go to practice and the setters would you know, set to the hitters and everybody would just practice volleyball. And there really wasn't anything that was specialized. And you know, we, by, by taking the setting position and turning it into a, a single position of it by itself for, for training, you know, we, we started to train like football players. And you've heard me say in past podcasts that I think volleyball players should train situationally and positionally uh, much like football players do. And it's one of the things that you see right now. I mean, you see all these Libro camps and all these first contact camps and you see all this stuff. But um, I think the thing we did was we, we started doing this in the late 80s uh, just so we could get those positions more 
concentrated work. And I think we felt that the setting position could be separated from the rest of the normal skill and team training, just like the quarterback position is in football. I mean, today, virtually every elite level quarterback has their own quarterback coach. They spend their summers at elite passing camps. They've grown up playing in seven-on-seven passing leagues during the summer where they play non-contact games, throw the ball on every play. And in fact, the seven-on-seven passing leagues have really revolutionized the sport of football, brought football to spread offense, created hundreds of elite-level high school quarterbacks that play the game at a higher level and, and more sophisticated now than college quarterbacks were playing 30 years ago. And much like the quarterback who spends a great deal of time on footwork and throwing to all the areas in the field, the setter needs a great deal of time as well doing the same thing. The setter needs to train footwork. The setter needs to train set location. The setter needs to train tempo uh, at all positions on the court. You know, the hand release, everything that, you know, the quarterback does to practice their craft, the setter needs to do the same thing. And and the work can be much more concentrated and, and localized and also coach focused if the setter is working on their own to train the things that they do within their position. It doesn't mean the setter doesn't need to train with the team, but what it does mean is it means there's a place in training for the setting position to just spend time by themselves uh, evolving and developing their craft. And I, I think it, you know, it might sound hard to believe, but in the early 1980s, there were no there were no setting camps. The only volleyball camps around the country were just all skills camps. And, you know, you would go and you would practice all the skills and, you know, you would play tournaments and, but there wasn't any specific position training for the setters. And, you know, just, you, you know, when you went to a camp, you just practice all the skills and then there might be a camp tournament at the end or the coaches might play a tournament. The kids would watch, which was really popular for a while that players who paid money to go to camp were sitting on the floor watching coaches play uh, because all the coaches were generally players or former players. But and the idea of a camp just for setters uh, or just maybe first contact now, like you have a lot of Libro first contact camps, that was non-existent in the 1980s. And in the late in the late 1980s, we started running camps just for setters. At first, the camps were small, but as our team started to win and our setters started to become much more high profile in the junior community, our camps started to become much more popular. And as we got into the 1990s, uh, the popularity of our setting camps exploded. And you know, for the next 25 years, we were training as many as 500 plus setters every summer in setting camps. We would have setters come in from all over the country, all over the world. Lots of setters from Canada uh, would come into our setting camps to train because the the reputation of our setters, <clears throat> the style of our setters, uh, what we were trying to teach, the concentrated work of what we're get, people were getting to do in camp, uh, it became very popular. So, uh, you know, even to this day, the sports performance setters camps are generally sold out because uh, the 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 concept of how we trained the setters for those four decades uh, is still embedded in everything that, that they do now. And uh, we also expanded our setting camp offering. We, we divided our camps into different levels. We had an academy series, which was longer for more elite players. We had a beginner level, uh, which was just all fundamental, so kids could come in and, and go to, you, you have to start at A before you can get to B, before you can go to C, before you go to D, before you ever get to Z. And, you know, the Academy Series camps, you know, we would start in the middle uh, uh, and, and try to work to get to the end. But at the beginning level camps, you know, we wanted the kids to have good fundamentals. And it's one of the things that I've talked about a lot in podcasts is, you know, we're a nation that loves to play. We don't like to practice. 
Uh, a lot of our kids have a lot of game experience, but they have weaknesses, technical weaknesses in certain area. And we saw that in the setting camps. We had kids that they just wanted to come to the most elite camp because they thought, you know, that was going to be where the best players were, which was true. But they might not be ready for that. They might not have had good hand position. So at a lot of these camps, we would take kids aside and say, you know, you've got to get this. You've got to master these areas before you go to the next area. And so, you know, we also offered a hands camp. I mean, we would have kids come in for just two days or three days, and they specifically just worked on their hands because the, you know, as I'm going to talk about pretty soon, the development of the hands is so important for the sport of volleyball. Um, but, you know, the, the crown jewel of our setting camp series was our 10-day setting camp that was held in Lyle, Illinois. And, you know, setters from all over the world came. Again, we had a lot of kids from Canada that came down. You know, kids from Europe would come in for it. But it was 10 days. It was 26 sessions. It was over 60 hours of just setter training. And, uh, you know, we, it, it, the gym was not air conditioning. It was a brutal but so effective camp uh, for kids at that time. And, you know, when I first proposed a 10-day setting camp, I mean, everybody told me that I was crazy, that, that nobody would come to it because it was 10 days long. But to me, it made a lot of sense because at that point in time, you know, kids were traveling all over the country to go to multiple camps uh, for setting. And so I thought, you know, instead of traveling all over to go to a bunch of camps, setters could come to one location, uh, get great training over the same amount of time that they would normally have gone to three separate camps. And they would end up paying a lot less money because there'd be less travel. You know, the camp fee for the extended camp, while it was high, was nothing like it would have been if they would have gone to three different camps. So you know, we, you know, I think my instincts ended up being right on that pretty quickly. And, you know, the 10-day setting academy we had, you know, began to, it, it was sold out every year. And it would fill up, all, we would open registration. It would fill up almost immediately, most of it. I mean, we would have 50, 60 kids register almost right away the first day. And I think we had 100 kids total. We had eight or nine courts that we were working on. So, but it would fill up almost right away. And it had three sessions a day. And in the middle of the camp, we held a classroom video setting tactic session. And that I think that was extremely valuable as well because we we would watch video of the best setters in the world and point out that these setters were making the same exact sets using the same footworking techniques that we were practicing every day in camp and that had been my that had been my light bulb moment from years and years earlier when I saw these setters uh, around the world. They made these great jump spin sets. They made these side sets. They would run back and set off their outside leg or turn off their inside leg. And they were never, they were never trained on a regular basis to do that. But when the play broke down or the ball dictated that they couldn't square up and stop and face their target, that's what they went to. So we evolved to, if that's what you're going to go to when you when you have to chase the ball all over the court, then let's master these techniques so we're a lot more comfortable with them. And also they allow us to make different sets. They allow us to uh, you know, be more deceptive. But that's one of the things that we did. So as we watched these, you know, we had this middle, middle day um, classroom session. As we watched all the best setters in the world, the, these young kids at camp were saying that everything they were working on every day was what these best setters had mastered uh, over the years as they as they played the game at the highest level. So, and the reason that I <clears throat> bring up this ten day setting academy is because it's difficult to describe the level of growth we would see in many of the setters after ten days and sixty hours of training. I mean, in some instances, it was hard to believe that the players leaving camp on day ten were the same players who had started on day one. And players would often comment that they would set more balls during that 10-day camp than they had set in the past year in their club and high school teams combined. And so, you know, what I'm trying to get at is, you know, when you sit down and you 
put time and concentrated effort into doing one or two things, you you advance yourself at a really, really high, really high level at that skill. And that's one of the things that when I talk about volleyball players training like football players, I mean, a lot of times you go to a volleyball practice, you know, you don't touch the ball a lot because it's spread out among a lot of different areas. And a lot of coaches love to do just six on six. But, you know, if you're a setter and you're setting 60, 70,000 balls in a 10 day period, I mean, you're changed. You're changed significantly. And one of the things I would always tell the kids at camp is if you just go home and spend an hour a day on your setting, you know, you're going to be able to maintain the things that you learned at the camp. But, but I've never forgotten when kids would leave the camp, how, how much better they looked than than just 10 days earlier. I mean, they were setting the ball a lot further. Their releases was clean. Their footwork was so good because one of the things that, that we always say is you have to be able to execute your skills without thought. You can't think about your technique. You don't think about your footwork and setting. You don't. You don't think about any of those things. Your job as a setter is to get the ball to the hitter, uh, you know, at the at the most basic form, at the most basic level. And so the one thing you want to have done is you want to practice your craft enough times that you know it's automatic for you. You don't think about one leg or two leg or side set or jump or jump spin or setting one handed or setting underhanded or setting quick underhand. You don't think about any of that stuff. You just move to the ball and your body takes over and your training takes over and your training can't take over if your training hasn't created muscle memory that's going to allow you to be the most effective and the most efficient when you're playing. So, um, you know, with, with our camp program, as we got past 2010, 2010, the club season got longer and kids became busier and busier between club and high school. And, you know, what we did was we eventually, we, we moved our 10 day camp down to nine days and then we eventually moved it to seven and, and, and it was, I think it still sits at seven days right now, but I'll never forget the impact of that 10-day camp and, and just how, how it was so effective for the kids that came to it. And, you know, you, if you've listened to past podcasts, you've heard me say over and over again that, that volleyball players need to train like football players. And that's just, again, I, want to, I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I want to say you need to spend a great deal of time training the specific demands of individual positions. And, you know, it's hard to do that when you, when you have just, just game play. And, you know, much of my thought process uh, on this has been just from watching the growth of the players when we would spend that much time in their positions. And, you know, we can see this all over the country now. I mean, there are setting camps, there are first contact camps for pass and dig, there are middle blocker camps, and, you know, there are team camps where you go and just play volleyball, and you know, that, which is the same thing. I mean, if you take your team to a team camp, the, you know, the idea is to grow as a team, and, you know, you just play, you play all the time. And so you're always doing things uh, you know, in areas now, and it's one of the things that if you, with social media and with Instagram and all, all that stuff, I mean, you see all these people promoting all the things that they do, either in, you know, for libro play or for middle blockers or for, you know, attacking, or it's all individual skill training. It all is. And, you know, so one of the things that you're going to have to decide as a coach is, you know, how much time do I spend in, in my six on six and how much time do I spend on my individual positions? And then how much do I spend in maybe small groups where I want two or three different demands of a skill to be worked on, like pass to attack or pass to attack versus block or dig to attack versus block or, you know, things like that. But, you know, that it comes down to that. It comes down and, you know, to, you know, taking positions and making those positions, you know, almost self-sufficient in, in a training model. And uh, as a coach, you have to understand if you are a coach listening to this, which I'm sure most people are coaches, 
you have to understand the biomechanical demands and the the most efficient ways to train positions and you know and everybody can say well there's a million ways to skin a cat but there really isn't a million ways to skin a cat there there's the best way to skin a cat and then there's other ways to spin a cat skin a cat that might not be most efficient and i look at setting the same way i mean the idea is you're always trying to get efficiencies and so um i think that's that's going to be really important and um, you know, another reason I say this is because athletes, you know, you spend 25 to 30 days a year playing tournaments and convention centers on concrete floor trying to impress college coaches. And um, there's a lot of damage to that and there's a lot of stress on the body. And, you know, I think one of the things that we want is we want to make sure that when we do those things that our because college coaches are looking to recruit a player that has a high level of skill. Uh, they're taking that player out of the team they play on and they're projecting that player to come into their own gym and to play at a high level in their own gym. So, you know, individual skill development and being great at your position and, and having fewer weaknesses at your position, you know, is is the p- future of getting recruited. I mean, it, it, it comes down to physicality. It comes down to a lot of other things. But, you know, you have to have a high level of skill. It's just one of the things that's really important. So I think that's one of the things that's key. And... um I think the third thing that we did was, you know, one of the things that I talk a lot about to players is that you need to be a gym rat. And we always wanted to, we always wanted our players to be individually motivated so that they would come to the gym on their own. They would do work on their own. It wasn't just in the context of when their team practiced. And it's the one thing that I see um, the most at every level, but it's especially, you know, sometimes in girls sports, you know, if you haven't grown up playing sports and it's not as, not as, uh, uh, prevalent now, but you know, if you haven't grown up just playing a sport all the time where you would either go outside and play or you, you were active in sport, a lot of times you don't know how to be a gym rat. And that's one of the things that, you know, we talked to our kids early on long time ago is, you know, a, a basketball player can go to, um, uh, a, a, bas- a basketball court or walk in a gym and they can play with a ball and a rim. They can play basketball all day with themselves. You know, a um, uh, baseball player can, can play catch or can pitch or uh, can go to a batting cage and hit all day by themselves. And, you know, tennis players can work uh, against, uh, you know, they, they work on a coach just hitting balls to them and they play back. And so one of the things that we wanted to do was we wanted to develop this individual training model for setters. And, we chose the wall. And, you know, one of the things that we knew, you know, if you, if you look at cult, the, the gym rat concept of culture, players are encouraged to become self-sufficient in their training and able to work on their own. Like I said, the basketball player can go to the gym and practice all day by themselves with just a ball and a basket. The football quarterback and baseball pitcher can throw to targets or with another player. The baseball hitter can get in the cage again and, and hit all day. The golfer can go to a putting green or driving range and spend hours working on putting and driving the golf ball without ever stepping on the course to play. And I think if you look at volleyball, you know, how many gyms have a volleyball nut set up all the time? They don't. But generally, almost every gym has a wall. And when we turn the wall for a volleyball setter into what a rim and a basket is for a basketball player. And over the years, we developed a, a very extensive training program using the wall as a partner. And the partner, your partner, when the wall is your partner, uh, you consistently get the ball back. You don't waste your time talking uh, about all the problems and 
in their your life because there's nobody to talk to. You don't hear back from your partner about all the problems in their life because your partner's not talking. And in other words, you get all the benefits of, of a training partner without all the conversation and wasted time. And, you know, I'm kidding, but I'm, I'm sort of kidding. Uh, I think one of the things that great wall training can do is allow a setter to develop great ball release. And, you know, wrist and finger strength, ball location, using using targets on the wall. You can master many different postures and body positions that occur on the court. And you can develop great footwork if you're creative enough uh, to understand all the things that you can do in a wall circuit. And I'm not talking about just, you know... Um, if you, if you just have access to a wall, I think you could easily do a good hour every day of daily training, uh, set hundreds if not thousands of balls, and you would see a dramatic improvement in in those areas just by being able to work on the wall. And, and I'm not talking about a wall program where the setter stands a foot from the wall and just basically two-hand dribbles the ball against the wall a thousand times. I think a lot of people think that that's, that's what you know a wall program is, and that's not the case. And I'm talking about a well-planned training program that's systematic in nature, and it progresses to a high level of execution, forces the setter to improve or fail in a on a regular ongoing basis. And it, that it, it is challenging enough that if you don't do it the right way, you're going to have trouble executing the skills. And I really can't imagine a setter training program, especially for younger setters that would not incorporate a healthy dose of wall training to assist in like foundation and fundamental development. I think that's just really, really important. And so, um, you know, I think that if these three concepts that, you know, and I'm going to talk a lot more in the next podcast about, you know, developing the hands and the key traits of setting and, and, you know, the concepts of being able to, to use your eyes and all the other things that go into making a great setter. But, you know, in this overview, I think the, in looking back, I think the three things that we did um, that changed the way people looked at training setters are, you know, we, our setters started looking pretty different right away because one of the things that that you saw in uh, the setting position in the 80s and prior to that was the setters all pretty much looked the same they just you know you squared up at the ball you know it was it was a two-footed square up you know there wasn't a lot of there wasn't a lot of the 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 mobility and the flexibility and setting that you see across the board today even at the high school level uh so I think that the three things to go back and review, I think the three things that we did was, you know, that the setting position looked different. And when the setting, when our setters started to look different in the late eighties and early nineties, you know, and you're playing at all these different junior tournaments, people notice right away. And also our teams were winning. Our teams were winning a lot. So, you know, there's a tendency to follow the people who are having success. And I think you look at, you look at the setting position and it, we, it started to look different. And I remember, I remember talking to coaches, uh, you know, and, and I, it was pretty obvious that a lot of coaches didn't like the way our setters trained because they would get recruited, they would go to college, and the co- college coaches would try to tr- change them almost immediately. And they wanted to stop, they wanted to be static, they wanted to only, you know, set with their, on the ground, feet stopped. And so, you know, there would be, and I know a lot of that. I mean, you know, our setters would be frustrated, I would get calls, or I would talk to them when I would watch them play, and say, the coach is trying to change me. And, you know, my thing was always, why did they recruit you if they want to change you? But, you know, it was several years later that a, 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 I talked to, had a conversation with a coach and the coach was head coached at a high level, had played at a high level. And he was talking to me, he goes, you know, I used to really, 
not agree with your, you know, some of the things that you did technically with your setters. He goes, but I'm starting to see more and more, you know, how relevant they are in, you know, in the way the game is played. And so that as, as the setting position started to look different, I think that's when, you know, as our setters look different, that's when the, the other players across the country started to notice that maybe there was a different way to train the setting position. And basically prepare for the things that happen when you play, not just train, you know, the optimal situation at all times, which is, you know, stand at the net, have somebody toss the ball to you, just square up, face your target. And that's, that's your setter training. And for us, you know, we did, that's what we did the least of. We did the most of all the other stuff, all the other demands that would be harder to execute, but we knew we're going to come our way on a regular basis. So that's the first thing, just the setters look different. The second one is that, you know, which I, which I mentioned, you know, we started to, we broke the setting position off as a separate position. The setter could go and just train on their own uh, and, you know, and get lots of work done. They would spend a lot of the summer in training. They wouldn't be with the team, but when they got back to their team, they would be significantly improved. And so, and also when you take the setting position out, you know, again, like the quarterback in football, it's, you know, you can talk about tactics, you can talk about tempo, you can, you can break down how the setting position functions, which is really hard to do when you're in a team setting and you stop and you talk to your setter, then everything just stops and dies. And so I think that the number two was that, you know, that we took the setting position, we turned it into an individual position. You can train all summer as a setter, you know, and now it's just across the board, setters are out all the time. They're in before practice. They're after practice. They're coming days off. They're they're off at setting camps in the summer. I mean, across the board, this is accepted methodology. But you know, trust me, in the 1980s, nobody had done it. Nobody had ever heard of it. It wasn't it wasn't something you did. And then you know, the last thing is you know what we did was we turned we turned the setter into we we pushed this gym rat philosophy, and we found that we could use a wall as a partner to continue to grow and develop as a setter. And then what also happened as a coach, one of the things I found myself doing is as our setters got better, we had to continually be more creative and better at developing training systems to challenge them to improve themselves. I mean, it's one of the things that you, you know, if you, if players aren't challenged to get better, if they're just, they stay static and they're just, you know, it's, it's the norm of what they're used to doing all the time. They have a tendency to get stagnant. So we were always working to develop new drills, develop new methodologies or techniques, always trying to give them new cues. You know, how can we make this more challenging? And you've heard me talk a lot in podcasts about difficulty, that that failure is the growth to success. And so for us in, in the setting position, especially because we were known across the country at sports performance as, you know, we were the, we were the group that we trained setters. We were the setter training group. And, you know, I'm not at sports performance anymore. I'm an Atlanta performance. But, you know, the methodology that came out of what we did in the 80s and 90s and 2000s, you know, to 2010 and even beyond, you know, that methodology was was prevalent across the board. And, you know, it was mentioned in TV broadcast. It was, I was t- always talked about with coaches. I mean, you know, the setting videos that I've done have sold tens of thousands of copies. And so, uh, you know, that, that was, you know, we, we took that training, that individual training, uh, you know, and we, we try to tell our setters, if you walk in a gym and there's just a wall available and you have a ball, then you're good. You can continue to train because, you know, it's hard to find hitters all the time. A lot of times there's no net set up, but we wanted the ability to make our setters better. And we said, you know what, 
if you want to get in the gym and you want to do work on your own, we can give you a lot of things. If you don't have a partner, if you don't have hitters, if you don't have a net, if you don't have those things, we can still keep you really busy and developing on doing, you know, this wall training methodology, the wall training system. And so it's one of the things that I think we thought was important. So, you know, that's that's going to cover the first session of this podcast. We're going to get into detail on a lot of other things in the second session. I didn't want to go too long for everybody. Everybody's busy now. And, you know, an hour popping out an hour, hour podcast, a lot of times you don't have time to listen to it but you know one of the things to think about it as you train your setters is you know you as you watch setters play the is how the 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 efficiency that they play the game at the flexibility you give them to make sets that you know are are hard to make you know the, the the way you encourage them to take chances to be successful to make more difficult sets as opposed to chastise them for maybe trying to do something because you're going to anything that you do that's new you're going to be bad at when you start you're not going to be proficient at it and you know as you've heard me talk about in a lot of other podcasts i mean the, the most important thing is to is to have a high level of skill in the position that you play and there's no position that's more important in the setting position and we're going to get into all the traits and personality issues and and some of the biomechanical stuff in the next session, in the next podcast. But it, it's it, as you think about developing your setters, you know, I think that's one of the things. And we'll talk about personality a lot in the next in the next podcast as well. But uh, I wanted to introduce you to the things that we had done. I wanted to get an overview of why we did the things that we did and how I got started in it. And until next time, I want to wish everybody the very best of luck and, and hope your season's going well right now. And uh, um, I'll look forward to talking to you next time. Thank you.